Hi, this is Dave Olson. I'm the senior leader of Heartland Church located in Ankeny, Iowa. I hope the following message challenges, encourages, and ultimately changes you. Thanks for joining us. Good morning. It's good to be with you this morning and uh, good to be in the house of the Lord. Almost alone, but I know that you guys are all with us in spirit. You know, Paul talks like that in 2 Corinthians. He said, when I am with you in spirit and the spirit of the Lord is with you so we can be with each other in spirit. So, all right, we're going to get into the word this morning. If you would turn with me, open your Bibles, just open them and we'll figure out where we're going to go eventually. No, if you would turn with me to 2 Chronicles chapter 19. And uh, what I want to look at this morning... Uh, and and uh, we may get back into what we have been talking about, but I want to take a break this morning and uh, get into something that uh, I've been mulling some things over the last number of days, really since this crisis uh, began. And uh, I want to talk about this. I want to really talk about four different things. I'm not going to go point by point through these four things, but these kind of set the parameters to the subject matter I want to look at this morning. I want to look at crises, the judgment of God, prophecy and intercession. And those four things have relationship together. And so we want to look at this because if you are, uh, if you are like us, if, you know, Heartland is a Pentecostal charismatic church. We hold to a Pentecostal hermeneutic. That means that we are still, we are continuists. We believe that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He didn't rescind his gift. His gifts were without repentance. And so he didn't, he didn't rescind those. Uh, he still operates today by the power of the spirit through his people. And so the, the gifts of the spirit still continue today. One of those is prophecy. We believe in prophets, uh, not just just the gift of prophecy, but also the gift of prophets in Ephesians chapter 4. And uh, there's been a lot of prophecies going around, some before this thing broke out. Uh, I know there were several major prophets talked about uh, this crisis coming on the horizon, and lo and behold, here it is. Uh, and then there's others giving their input after the fact. Some are saying it's the judgment of God. Other people are saying it's, it's you know, purely the enemy. And we need to just believe God for greater things. And so how do we navigate through all that? And those are the kind of things I want to look at this morning. So let's go ahead and pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, I ask that you would lead and guide us this morning. That we would have your heart and your mind. Lord, open your word to us. Give us insight. Help us to understand your word. In Jesus' name. Amen. You know, one of the guiding principles whenever you go through a hard time, whether you're going through as an individual or you're going through globally uh, as the world is right now, one of the guiding principles for the believer is to take refuge in the character, the nature of God. So we, we withdraw into who he is. Uh, and Paul gives us some pointers in Romans chapter 11. Paul tells us, consider therefore the kindness and sternness of the Lord. He tells us to consider both or keep both in consideration or uh, the idea in the Greek there is to keep them at the forefront, uh, to always keep those things in consideration, the kindness and sternness of the Lord. Those are not in contradiction to one another. God is, uh, God is not in contradiction within his own nature. We can be as fallen human beings, but God is not. God is very comfortable with all facets of his nature. Uh, he is in integrated. He has integrity. Uh, he doesn't have to shut off one aspect of his nature in order to exhibit another. God is integrated and therefore he has integrity. When we say someone lacks integrity, literally we mean that they are not integrated. They have to set a portion of their nature, their personality, their character aside in order to function in another aspect of their nature, their character. Uh, they, uh, In order to lie, somebody has to set aside 
aside uh, an aspect of their character and divorce themselves from that aspect for a moment because they're not integrated. They don't have integrity. God is always integrated in all that he does. Uh, That's why uh, the prophet could pray, in wrath, remember mercy. They're not at odds with each other. God can operate in both. And so he said, God, while you're in your wrath, remember mercy. And so God can operate in both of those. And, And so Paul, the apostle in the New Testament, gives us that same idea. Consider, therefore, the kindness and sternness of God. It's right there in Romans chapter 11. I want to say it's verse 26, but don't quote me on that. You can look it up. Romans chapter 11. And both of those are very important in a situation like we're going through as a nation, as a globe, as a people, considering, therefore, the kindness and sternness of God. And it's very important for us, not, as only, not only as a prophetic people, but especially as a people of intercession. We are intercessors. We are those who stand before the throne of God representing the earth. You know, uh, we are a kingdom of priests, Scripture says. First Peter talks about us being a kingdom of priests. Uh, the, the, the nation of Israel was to be a priestly people. Uh, they were to represent the earth, represent God to the earth and the earth to God. And, and now, as the church, we are a kingdom of priests. Well, a priest is a go-between. A priest is someone who, before heaven, represents the people. But before the people, they represent heaven. And that is not uh, a role or a responsibility or a privilege that's isolated to ministers in the New Testament, to those who are called to full-time ministry. That is the blood-bought heritage of every one of us as believers. We are priests. So before God, we represent the people. Before the people, we represent God. And we need to understand that. And in so doing, we are intercessors because intercessors, literally the word means someone who stands between, where intercedere, we stand between two two individuals. We're mediators as intercessors. And so we're crying out on behalf of the people before the throne of God. In so doing, we must consider the character and the nature of God. We got to consider the kindness and sternness of God. The kindness of God makes prayer a possibility. If God were not kind, then we might as well not even waste our breath in prayer. Uh, It's the fact that the kindness of God opens the door for us to pray and petition God. It's a wonderful thing. It's the kindness of God which makes prayer possible. But it is the sternness of God which makes prayer essential. It's the sternness of God that makes it a requirement because God is a God of justice and man cannot sin without it, with impunity without there being some consequences unless there's an intercessor. So we need to stand in the gap. So the kindness of God gives us hope. The sternness of God gives us a sense of urgency. It's the kindness of God and the, urgent, the, the uh, sternness of God that causes us to engage in intercession. And those are crucial. And so through that lens, I want to look at this present situation and, and really, I don't want to, I don't want to oversell this message this morning. I'm not really going to so much deal with this specific situation of the coronavirus as I am with the principles surrounding these type of situations. How are we to navigate these as prophetic intercessory people? That's, the, that's what we're looking at. And so there's a couple of metaphors in scripture that God uses uh, to speak on how he evaluates when he's looking at a scenario, at a, at a people, at a church, at a nation, uh, and whether he's going to discipline them or send a visitation, and whether the judgment of God will fall or whether the mercy of God will be visited on that people. And if you don't believe there's room for God to judge in the New Testament, Testament, we don't even have time to get into uh, addressing that theology. Other than to just let me mention this. Hebrews chapter 12 very, very clearly says, God disciplines those he loves and punishes everyone he accepts as a son. If you are not disciplined, you are an illegitimate son. And so the discipline of the Lord is an expression of God's 
love for us. He's correcting us. His temporary discipline is to keep us from the ultimate discipline of eternity without him. And so that, that is an expression of God's love. It's not, again, God doesn't have to turn off his love in order to discipline. We, we often talk about the father heart of God, the father's love. Well, that is a valid scriptural precedence, but one of the expressions of the father's heart very clearly in scripture overtly says that it's an expression of the father's heart is the discipline of the Lord. Have you ever been under the discipline of the Lord? The fact is, if God loves you, you have. Hopefully you recognized it because we need to be wise and learn from discipline because Proverbs is very clear. The discipline of a father is to instruct the children and to instill in them wisdom so that they don't make the same mistakes in the future. But if you come under the discipline of the Lord and don't realize it, you can fail to learn from it and continue to take laps around Mount Sinai. You can continue to have to go through the same set of learning, the same lessons again and again and again. And so we need to learn from the discipline of the Lord. So we need to recognize when God is disciplining us, when God is putting his finger on something in our life and saying, I want to correct this. We need to recognize that. And so in scripture, there are a couple of uh, metaphors, at least two metaphors I want to call your attention to this morning that... God uses in his evaluation, the process by which he evalu evaluates what he's going to do with the people group. Is he going to uh, visit them with revival or is he going to visit them with judgment? Is he going to... Uh, is he going to uh, bring in new leadership, judgment, and bring them into captivity? Or is he going to introduce revival to those people? There's two metaphors. The first one we see is either cups or bowls. Uh, you could call it the battle of the bowls. Not bowls, B-U-L-L-S, bowls, B-O-W-L-S, the battle of the bowls. Uh, we see this throughout scripture, the cup or the bowl of God's anger that it fills and then it overflows flows in judgment. And so the iniquity of people, scripture uses this language, the iniquity uh, in Genesis where uh, the Canaanite people, the, the land that God was going to give to Abraham and his uh, family, Israel, those that would come from his loins, the, the children of Israel, what was called the promised land, was first owned by the Canaanite people. And God said, I'm going to give it to you, but not yet, because their iniquity has not yet filled up. And the picture is that when the iniquity fills up in a bowl, it overflows in judgment. And so the discipline of the Lord, and in that situation, the Canaanite people lost their land, came under the discipline, the judgment of God. We see this same picture in the book of Revelation, bowls being flowing over. We also see this in Isaiah, in Job, in uh, Jeremiah, uses this same terminology of drinking of the anger of the Lord and the discipline of the Lord because the iniquity fills up. There's another picture we see in Revelation, another set of bowls, and it was the bowl of intercession. And we see it in Revelation chapter 8, uh, the bowls of intercession the elders, uh, Mike Bickle and IHOP have made this, this terminology famous across the world, the harp and bowl. And the, the picture is the harp uh, representing the worship, the music and the worship that comes up before the throne. And the bowl being the prayers of the saints. The incense, the prayers of the saints go in the bowl. And then when it fills up, it overflows in visitation. And it, we see from that is released thunders and lightning, the power is poured out on the earth. And so there's the battle of the bowls. Which bowl is going to fill up first? Is it the bowl of God of iniquity, which will overflow in discipline and anger? Or is it the bowl of intercession that will overflow in power and visitation? The, the history of the future, rather, the outcome lies largely with the people of God. Scripture is very clear. If my people who are called by my name, who will humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways. I will hear from heaven. I will heal their land. 
And, and so it's that, that idea of God's people being the preservative, the ones who stand in the gap as the intercessors. Now, left without an intercessor, God has to uh, visit a people because God's judgment will also always be visited for the, great, the, the greatest amount of good, for the greatest amount of people, for the greatest amount of time because God himself is good. So God will always exercise his judgment for the greatest amount of people, for the greatest amount of good, for the greatest amount of time. But in so doing, he has to step in and bring an end to the iniquity of people that causes pain. And so the intercessors are those who step in, stand in the gap, ask for mercy, lift the darkness so that people can see. We talked about it last week out of 2 Corinthians chapter 4. It says the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbeliever. And so it's our intercession that can lift that mist, that, that darkness that comes over the unbeliever so that they see what Paul calls in 2 Corinthians 4, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. And so we get under the load of sin and we vicariously repent on behalf of the people. We cry out to God and we ask forgiveness for the sins of our nation, our sins and the sins of our nation, just as Daniel did before his angelic visitation in Daniel chapter 9. We talked about it last week, how Jesus vicariously suffered so we don't have to. And we had to enter in through repentance to come into the good of that so that we could receive the gift that Jesus purchased through his suffering. Well, you and I as believers now can intercede and we can vicariously repent so that darkness lifts and people can see and turn and they can enter into that repentance and enter into the blessing. So all of this is connected. So we have the battle of the bowls throughout scripture. Way from Genesis all the way to Revelation, this picture of the bowl or the cup of God's judgment. Another picture we have are the scales. We have God balancing people in the scales. And we see this in Daniel chapter 5, where God, uh, and we still use that terminology today. We say they're, uh, they're being balanced. They're, the, the scales are being balanced, where God is weighing this situation, or I'm weighing this situation. It means that we're still looking at the alternatives of this judgment. In Daniel chapter 5, we see uh, the, the, the pagan king under which the aged prophet Daniel is now serving. He's parting down and he remembers that his grandfather had plundered the temple of God and had gotten these golden goblets. So he said, bring those out. And they're having a party and they start to drink wine out of them. And while they're parting, all of a sudden, vividly, uh, visually, this, this hand appears and carves writing, meeny, meeny, tekel you farsen, right on the wall. I mean, what an amazing encounter. These people are pagan unbelievers and they physically see a hand appear and write on the wall and they are shaken and they said, get Daniel because they knew Daniel was a prophet of God. And Daniel comes with the word of the Lord and had a lot of guts to say it. He said, you, uh, among other things, the last, the last part, tekel you farce, and he said, your, you, your, uh, your, your kingdom has been weighed and found wanting. In other words, the iniquity has outweighed the prayers. The bad has outweighed the good. The sin has outweighed the righteousness. And God is bringing this thing to an end this night. And he says, he says that it's going to be, your kingdom's going to be divided between the Medes and the Persians. And so there's this idea of being in the balances. So we have bowls being filled up and we have scales being balanced. The, the good between the bad, God evaluating. And so both, what, what I want us to understand in this scenario, both of these metaphors give us a picture of a process by which God evaluates a people group. It's a process. It's not a, it's not a suddenly where God just comes in and says, I'm going I'm to evaluate things. He looked at the Canaanite people and he said, their bowl is not yet 
full. There was, there was a filling up, but there was a, a season of mercy where there could have been intervention. It didn't happen, but they, they were there, and then their regime was brought to an end. Both of these scenarios give us a window into a process by which God evaluates a people group. And if it's a process, it's a process that can be interrupted by the intercessor. Intercessors are those who interrupt the process and say, God, we're asking in wrath, remember mercy. Lord, we're asking that you would have mercy on a generation, have mercy on a people. And it's very important for us to understand that because Isaiah, I want to say it's 59, refers to the judgment of God or the sternness, that element of God's character as his alien work. I'm sorry, it's not 59, it's chapter 29. It refers to it as some translations translated his strange work, some as his alien work. It is his work, and uh, make no mistake about it, but it is his alien work, his strange work. It's in, in, the, in the sense that it's not God's desire to do that. What God wants to do is visit a nation with mercy, but he will be true to his character. And if he cannot find an intercessor that will stand in the gap and bring forth mass repentance, then God will have to, have to visit a nation with ever-increasing discipline under the judgments of God. But we can insert ourselves as intercessors and interrupt that process. We see this in that most famous intercessory passage. It's such a holy passage. I, I, I almost feel like I got to take my shoes off and even talking about this passage. Exodus 32, where God goes, or uh, Moses goes into the presence of God. And he's interceding. He's going to get the tablets of stone. And, and he's, he goes up to the Lord. And the Lord tells him, he says, Moses, leave me alone that my anger may burn. Because the children of Israel are down in the camp. Well, you're up in the mountain in the glory. They're down in the camp having orgies. And, and uh, they're, they're involved in all kinds of immorality. And I'm going to destroy them and make a new people out of you. It's going to be the nation of Mo. And Moses stands in the gap and he says, God, no, withhold your hand, Lord. And he begins to appeal to God on the basis of his character. He said, God, you told the Egyptians to let your people go to worship you out in the desert. What are they going to think? What about the fame of your name before the nations of the earth? When they find out that you in turn slew your own people out in the wilderness. And he said, God, for your own namesake. And he appeals to God's character, God's fame. Uh, he, he has a jealousy for the glory of God. And God relents. It's an amazing passage. And it gives us a window into the ways of God. You see, Moses knew the character of God. And if we hear words of judgment apart from the character of God, if we hear words of judgment without having an intimacy with God, we can fall under a despair and succumb to those things and fail to intercede. Because what we have is a vision of the sternness of God, void of the kindness of God. But when we understand God's character, when we have a relationship with him, you see, Moses saw beyond what God was saying. I want you to catch this. God specifically told Moses, he said, leave me alone, Moses. What a sobering thing to hear from the voice of God himself. Leave me alone, Moses. I can't imagine hearing that from God. And the very next phrase is even more frightening. That my anger may burn. He says, you got, I want you to get out of my presence, get out of my face, because I am set on my anger burning against the children of Israel. But Moses, because he had intimacy, he had a history with God, he knew the nature of God, he knew what Isaiah knew. He knew that God, that is your alien work. 
He had a relationship like David did when God pronounced judgment on David's son, child with Bathsheba. David had the audacity to continue to pray even after the pronouncement of judgment was released. There was something about that intimacy that gave them boldness even in the face of words of judgment. And God relented. Because Moses understood something and he saw an open door, a crack in the door that others would have missed because they didn't have the intimacy that Moses did. God said, leave me alone that my anger may burn. And Moses saw a crack, a possibility, and he realized if God's not alone, his anger can't burn. God is telling me to leave him alone in order that his anger may burn. So that means if there's an intercession that remains in the pocket, God's anger cannot burn. And Moses stayed in intercession and God relented. Now that begs the question, was God insincere in what he told Moses? Was God just messing with Moses? Was, it, was God using a psychological mechanism to elicit intercession out of Moses? Because God, uh, you know, God was manipulating Moses by this, this uh, veiled uh, thing that God was really going to do. God is not capable of being insincere. The nature of God is that he is always sincere. And so when God said he was going to destroy Israel, he meant he was going to destroy Israel. But when Moses stayed in the pocket of intercession, God changed his mind. Therefore, based on the authority of God's word, we must understand that intercession can change the mind and intentions of God himself. God has infused Man, the intercessor, with authority in intercession so that we can affect his heart and change the outcome. When God says something, let me put it this way. Prophecies are not inevitabilities. They are invitations to engage in intercession. They are, they're not inevitabilities. They're invitations so often we'll hear words and, and so we, we misunderstand because we don't understand God. We don't understand those principles of his word. And then we look at other scriptures and we think, well, anytime a prophet gives a word that doesn't happen, he must be a false prophet. Well, number one, that is an Old Testament ideal. In the New Testament, Paul very clearly says, let one prophesy and the others judge. If, there, if a prophecy was always God, then you can't, couldn't judge it. We, we judge, we weigh the words of the Lord in the New Testament. There is, we, we weigh those things to dis, discern whether that is of God or not. And even in the Old Testament, there were words that were given that were not fulfilled, that were legitimate words from heaven. Let me give you an example. I'll give you an example by a question. Was Jonah a false prophet or was he a true prophet? Jonah declared over the city of Nineveh after his flight from God and being puked up by a fish, Jonah landed on the shores and began to walk the three days journey through Nineveh proclaiming in 40 days this city will be judged. And yet it was not judged 40 days later. Why? Because they responded to the purpose of the prophecy and were able to avert the judgment in, uh, in the prophecy. The prophecy elicited the response. God was looking for relationship, just like with Moses. When he told Moses, I'm going to destroy Israel, Moses engaged in intercession. He cried out for them and God relented. Jonah declared a, a true prophetic word over the city of Nineveh. The Ninevites repented. They responded the way that God desired for them to respond. And God relented. And it wasn't that that was a, a false prophet, prophecy. It wasn't that uh, Jonah had missed it. It was that the prophetic word fulfilled the purpose. It achieved the purpose that God sent it forth for. So prophecies by, by the authority of God's word 
are not inevitabilities. They are invitations to engage God in relenting, to engage God into changing his mind. And I'm talking specifically about prophecies of judgment, prophecies that of discipline from the Lord. And so we need to understand that we can engage God and we can move his heart. Now, let me, let's, now let's go to our text. I told you to turn to 2 Chronicles 19. Let's turn there. 2 Chronicles 19. Uh, in 2 Chronicles 19, Jehoshaphat has just returned from battle. Um, the evil king Ahab, the king of Israel, had reached out to Jehoshaphat, the righteous king of Judah, and said, hey, will you go to war with me? And he did. And Ahab comes under the judgment of God. And uh, that's a whole other story, a very mysterious passage, uh, where the, the uh, Micaiah, the prophet, gets a, a picture into the, the divine counsel of how God is going to come to this decision. And so Ahab is killed in battle. And we pick up the story right on the heel of that episode in chapter 19. So Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, returned in safety to his house in Jerusalem. So Ahab's killed, Jehoshaphat returns in safety, but he's intercepted by a prophet. Verse 2, but Jehu, the son of Hanani, the seer, went out to meet him and said to King Jehoshaphat, should you help the wicked and love those who the Lord hates? He's referring to the partnership that Jehoshaphat had entered into with the wicked King Ahab. And really what he's saying is, buddy, you're lucky you didn't die in battle because that was orchestrated by God to discipline him, to discipline Israel and take him out. His iniquity had been filled and it was over for Ahab. You were in partnership with him and you're lucky you didn't die. He goes on to say, because of this, the wrath has, or wrath has gone out against you from the Lord. That's a sobering word to get from a prophet. He said, you shouldn't have went in partnership with this wicked man. You don't go into partnership with those who the Lord is disciplining. Those who hate the Lord, you don't go into a partnership with them. And he said, because of this, the wrath has gone out from the Lord against you. Verse three, nevertheless, some good has been found in you for you destroyed the Ashtaroth out of the land and have set out your heart to seek the Lord. The rest of the passage is how Jehoshaphat trains the people, schools the people uh, in living according to the edicts of the Lord. But we have this negative word floating in the air that he had received from the prophet Jehu. Now we enter into chapter 20. And listen to what it says. After this, after this negative word and followed by Jehoshaphat going about the business of building the kingdom under the precepts of the Lord. After this, the Moabites and the Ammonites uh, uh, and Ammonites and with them some of the Menunites came against Jehoshaphat for battle. So now all of a sudden we have this attack that has come against Jehoshaphat. Some men came and told Jehoshaphat, a great multitude is coming against you from Edom, from beyond the sea, and behold, they are in Hazazaron Tamar. It says that is Engedi. Let's just stay with Engedi. I don't even know how to say that word. And that is Engedi. And listen to what it says. This is Jehoshaphat's response. Then Jehoshaphat was afraid to set his face to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. Why? Why was this godly man afraid to set his face to seeking the Lord? I would propose to you it's because he had this negative word hanging over him from the prophet Jehu. So what is Jehoshaphat supposed to do? Does he just resign himself to the sternness of God or does he engage himself in the kindness of God? And that's what he did. He told the people of God to begin to pray and Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord and all the cities of Judah that came to seek the Lord. And Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and, and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court and said, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? He begins to appeal to God and the promises of God. Let me share a principle with you. In a time of prophetic con confusion, 
Go to the promises of God. Go to the word of God. In a time of conflicting prophetic words, go to the promises of God. Go to the word of God. Go to the word and find a promise upon which you can latch your hope. He says to him, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms and the nations. In your hand are power and might so that none, none is able to withstand you. Did you not, O God? Drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend. Notice how these men of God of old, Moses, now Jehoshaphat, they are appealing to the, the promises of God, to the character of God, to the fame of his name. They're appealing to his honor and they're saying, God, did you not promise this land to your friend Abram, he's reminding them of the covenant, his covenant friend Abraham, and they lived in it and built for you a sanctuary for your name and saying, if disaster comes upon us, the sword, judgment or pestilence or famine, we will stand before this very house, before your name and your name of this house and cry out in affliction and you will hear and save. That was a direct promise from God to the children of Israel. And, and now Jehoshaphat is appealing to that promise. Even though there's this negative word hanging over their head, they still are in the pocket of intercession. We see the same thing again with David. When David laid with Bathsheba, committed adultery, then when it was exposed, he, or, uh, before it was exposed, he, he found out that she was, uh, Bathsheba was pregnant. She was married to one of David's mighty men, one of his most, most faithful men, Uriah the Hittite. You see, the Hittites were enemies of Israel, but Uriah had converted. And so Uriah, who was once an enemy of the king, had converted, and he was one of the most faithful men to the king. He, David calls him back and, and, and uh, he wants him to go from battle. He wants him to go home and lay with his wife so he'll think the baby is his. But Uriah is such a faithful man of God and a, a faithful servant to the king that he, he comes from the battlefield, from the front lines, comes to meet with the king and then spends the night on the palace stairs so he can go back to battle the next day. David finds out he didn't go home and lay with his wife. He laid on the, the stairs of the, of the palace. He, he calls him in. He said, why didn't you do that? He said, God forbid that I should be able to lay with my wife when my brothers are out there fighting in battle. So David has him come in again the next night, gets him drunk, thinking that if I get him drunk, he'll go lay with his wife. And again, Uriah stumbles out drunk and lays down on the palace stairs because his integrity was such that even in a drunken state, the man had integrity. And he lays down and he goes to sleep. And so the next day, David writes a death warrant for Uriah. And he, he writes to the general and says, put Uriah in the fiercest place of fighting. And when the fighting is fierce, have all the men around him withdraw. So he was struck down. He puts it in a, in a satchel, seals it with the royal seals and gives it to Uriah. And Uriah, unbeknownst to him, delivers his own death warrant. And that's exactly what they did. And Uriah was killed. And the general sends word back. We, we were defeated, but Uriah the Hittite also fell, telling him that, hey, I, I bumped off your friend to cover up your sin. And David thought everything was taken care of. And then the prophet came and stuck his bony finger. Nathan came to David and said, told him a parable and exposed his sin. And he told him that this child would die, the product of the union with this adulterous union with Bathsheba. What does David do? David cries out to God. He gets in the seat. He, he doesn't cleanse himself. He doesn't take a bath. He doesn't eat. He's in the temple crying out to God, God, have mercy. Lord, I'm asking you, please, please have mercy and uh, spare the life of this child. And then the servants, they're coming by and they're seeing David and he's so, he's undone crying out. And then they find out the baby has died. And they're thinking, man, look at David is out of his mind with grief beforehand. What's he going to do if we tell him? And, he, and David sees them over in the corner mumbling. And David says, come, tell me what happened. And they shared with him, your baby's dead. David got up, went and bathed, ate, and then went and worshiped the Lord. And they said, David, we don't understand how can you be out of your mind in grief when the baby is sick, but be okay when the baby is dead? And David, in essence, said, I thought perhaps the Lord would relent, 
but I trust him and I know I can't see him now, but I'll go to see him someday. We'll be together in heaven someday. David was at rest in the discipline of the Lord. See, David understood, even in, under the, the, the uh, a negative word, the, the word of judgment, the word of discipline, he appealed to the kindness of God. One of the most striking, um, how do I say this? One of the greatest expressions of maturity in the child of God is their response to the discipline of God. One of the greatest expressions of maturity is how do they steward negativity coming around them? How do they steward uh, wrong things coming their way? How do they steward it when they receive a, wrong, a, a negative word? How do they receive it when they're under the discipline of the Lord? You see, the reason that's an expression of maturity is because a mature person understands the character and the nature of God. And even when God is operating in his strange, his alien work and, and meeting out judgment, even when he's disciplining his children, we understand that's an expression of the father's love. And so we don't withdraw from him. Maturity runs to God in discipline. Immaturity runs from him. We see with Saul, Saul ran from God into the arms of a witch to, to get a word from the Lord. David ran to the Lord under judgment. You could make a very strong case by saying that David's sin was greater than Saul's sin. David committed murder and adultery. Saul sacrificed uh, without permission from the Lord. Saul, uh, there were things that Saul did, but on, on the scale, yeah, you could say that David's sin was greater. And, and, and understand that this thing of all sin is equal is not a scriptural precedence. God does not look at all sin equally. Let me just let that sit for a moment. In the old covenant, there were certain sacrifices for certain sins and there were certain sins that there was more severe uh, a more costly sacrifice and there were some sac sins for which there was no sacrifice the new testament we see it says uh it even talks about for sins that there, there's the unforgivable the unpardonable sin in the new testament that not all sin is equal we have that embedded in our legal code because we intuitively know we have a sense of justice from the nature of God himself that understands there's a difference between premeditated murder and uh, murder, um, uh, an action of passion that in the moment, in a fit of rage, somebody does something and the person is killed and somebody that plans it out for three months. This is a greater evil. And so we understand that there's, there's levels of evil that are very clearly shown in scripture and logic tells us that. And David's sin, if you're looking at the premeditated nature, you could make a case for David's sin being greater. But David is called a man after God's heart and this, the kingdom was ripped from Saul's hands. Why? It was because of the relationship that David had with God. David ran to the Lord in discipline. Saul ran from the Lord. I've told this story before. Many of you have probably heard me say it, but I remember when I was in Bible school, a, a preacher was sharing about how his mama would spank him, and he learned that the secret of get not, the, the, uh, lessening the severity of a spanking was not running from his mom, but running to her and grabbing her around the thighs. He would grab her around the knees when he was a little boy. Because if he would run, her long legs could outrun him and she'd grab him by the hand and she'd get a good whip. She'd wind up real good and lift him right off the ground. She, he said, but if I could get near her, I'd grab her knees and she couldn't get a good wind up. So the secret was I'd hide from her near her. <laughs> I would get near her and that would absorb the blow. That's good preaching. The secret from God is in God. We hide from the wrath of God and the mercy of God, from the judgment of God in Calvary and the mercy of God. And those things are not at odds with one another. There's no shadow of turning within God. But it's a matter of seeing God for who he is. Intimacy, maturity, a familiarity with his word, uh, and therefore a familiarity with his character helps us to understand how to steward words of judgment. And we see Jehoshaphat. 
This time of judgment that he has been given this word and he's afraid to go before the Lord. But what does he do? He goes anyway because he knows I disobeyed. I knew better. I broke, I violated a principle. And now the enemy has come. There's been a door open and the enemy's coming at me, but I'm going to go and I'm going to ask mercy of God. And that's exactly what he received. He, he received mercy and another prophetic word came. And it was a word from the Lord that God was going to give them victory. It says in verse 14, and the spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, the son of Benaniah, the son of Jeel, the son of Mataniah, a Levite of the sons of Asaph in the midst of the assembly. And he said, listen, all, it says just before that, meanwhile, all Judah, think about this, the whole nation of Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, their wives and children. They're all standing. They'd been in fasting and prayer because they know there are three kings coming against them impending doom. And they're crying out to the Lord. And all of a sudden, the spirit of the Lord drops on one of the priests. And this is the word. He said, listen, all Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you. Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed at this great horde, for the battle is not yours but God's. Tomorrow go down against them. Behold, they will come up by the ascent of Ziz. You will find them at the end of the valley east of the wilderness of Jeruel. And, and God brought about a great victory that day. We see this this picture that they, uh, in under a prophecy of discipline, they reverted to the promises and the principles and they received another prophecy. They engaged heaven as intercessors. Here's the application for you and I. As the people of God, we have been invested with authority. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray. I have heard conflicting words coming out of the prophets in, uh, recently. I've heard convicting, conflicting. Some are saying the economy is going to be better than ever. Some are saying it's going to be a long road and worse than ever. Uh, which one is true? I don't know. And you know what? They could both be hearing from God. They could both be here. Scripture says we hear in part, we see in part, and we prophesy in part. That word part is meros. It, it has the idea of it's a measure. It's, a, uh, it's an allotment, uh, your share, that different people have a different share, a different perspective. They're coming from a different place. I remember there... Uh, a few years ago, I, there were two prophetic gals in, in Heartland at that time. They both have moved, but they, uh, they were both in the church at that time, and they would both uh, give me words at times. And I, there, I would be studying a passage of Scripture. I'd be alone with the Lord studying, and all of a sudden, bloop, bloop, I'd get two emails from two, these two different ladies, unbeknownst to the other, and it would be about the passage that I was studying, giving me insight and saying, Pastor, the Lord told me, he gave me this verse and told me to tell you, and boom, boom. And it was the very passage that I'm studying. It was uncanny. It was God using the prophetic to uh, zero in on a principle he was wanting to release to the body of Heartland. And it was very encouraging. But I began to track those words and I, I began to recognize how one of the ladies would give one word. It, it, uh, they, they would be the same word, but one of them gave it with a flavor of encouragement. The other with a flavor of urgency, like it was alarm and, and like impending danger. And I thought, what's the deal? And as I would weigh those two things, I finally went to the one who always gave encouragement. I said, what's the deal with the other one? And she said, oh, pastor, she's a, she's a watchman. I said, yeah. She said, you know, a watchman. I said, no, I don't know. What do you mean? She said, well, she's on the city wall and she's watching the movement of the enemy on the horizon. She, she's watching the movement of the enemy. I'm tuned into what God's doing. That's why mine are more encouraging. I can't tell you how that helped me because they were both the same word with a little different spin on it. Uh, not long after that, I was training the prophetic people and I laid hands on that woman. And I, I just, as soon as I laid my hands on her, all of a sudden I went into a vision and in the vision, her and I were on a castle wall and we were looking over the horizon and she was looking at me as she turned, she put a scope to her eye. And as soon as she looked through the scope, I was looking through it and we were going miles really fast. And all of a sudden it, there was a picture miles away, a close up of this demonic 
uh, soldier, like something out of the, the Lord of the Rings, and he growled at me. She dropped the scope, turned back around, and she said, Pastor, they're here, they're here. And I thought, no, they're not. But now I know why she acts like she does. And I began to track these words. There were times where she would say, Pastor, the Lord showed me this is coming. And I, I remember she showed me something very specifically. She told me something, and I thought, there is no way that's going to happen. We are so strong in that area. And within two years, that very thing happened. And it was something that was a warning from the Lord that we were able to avert and able to recover from because of that warning. And so there are different people have different shares. And one's an invitation into encouragement. Believe me and be encouraged. I'm going, I want to give you this. The other is an invitation into intercession and saying, pray, and this can be averted. Because both are invitations. Paul told Timothy, he said, I want to remind you of the prophecies along with the instructions given to you so that by them you may war a good warfare. He says by them, plural, what? What's the plural? The prophecies and the instructions. Whether it's a prophecy of, of, uh, on the horizon of in judgment or a prophecy on the horizon of encouragement, we need to cooperate with both and intercede because God needs a voice on the earth that we are, we are, uh, we are entering into that process while God is balancing the scales. We prophesy in part and we need to understand the part and move with him into those things. And so, realize prophecies are possibilities that need to be cooperated with. They come with instructions. And if you don't know the instructions, dig deeper. I'm a guy. When I buy something, I never open the instructions first. I try to put it together. And I've often had it happen that I have to then re- I have to dismantle the thing because I missed a part. And then I've got to dig deeper in the box to find the instructions. If you've been confused by some of the prophetic things flying around in the body of Christ, get back to the promises and the principles of his word and understand, get before you the character of the Lord, the kindness and sternness of God. Because I believe in a very real sense that our nation is in the balance. As I've asked the Lord, I, I've just, I've felt like there's a lack of clarity as to the future because there's some things that have not yet been decided. And God is waiting for the intercessors to tip the scales. The future belongs to the intercessors. And God is looking for us to put some weight on the right side of the scale. He's looking for us to fill the bowl of prayer so that it can overflow in visitation rather than filling the bowl of iniquity where God has to visit with judgment. I really sense that we're at a crossroads and there, there's an open possibility that this thing could go either way with our, our economy. I believe that the COVID is coming to a close. The real challenge I'm just saying my personal opinion about COVID, but I, I really sense from the Lord, the real challenge on the horizon is the economy and it could go either way. God is looking for the intercessors to engage and, and tip the scales in God's favor. Let's pray. Father, Lord, I ask God that you would stir us to intercession. Lord, I ask that you would encourage us with the possibilities, Lord, of what can be. Lord, we look to you. Father, we, we consider your sternness so we know that prayer is urgent. But Lord, we hide in your kindness so we feel an invitation to walk boldly before your throne of grace. It's urgent to pray because of your sternness, but it's possible to pray because of your kindness. And so, Lord, I ask, awaken the heart of your intercessors in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to help more people hear this message, you can get the word out by subscribing and sharing it on social media. If you'd like to support the ministries of Heartland Church, you can do so at heartlandchurchonline.com give.